Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcast. Thank you, by the way, to all of our podcast subscribers. Your subscriptions and your ratings and your reviews really do help us out. And if you haven't subscribed yet, I'd like to invite you to. That also really helps us out. I have been cooking today's show, for, at least in my mind, for a long time. I've wanted to have today's guest for a minute, as the kids say. I mean, we've been kind of in one another's orbits, although he's occupied more stratospheric territory in the democratic firmament than I have, but we've been kind of at least in the same solar system for a long time. I think we last sat in a room together 13 years ago. Jesse Ferguson is truly one of the bright minds in the Democratic Party. Time Magazine described him by saying, Jesse Ferguson has been one of the quiet forces inside rooms where power has been negotiated, won, or ceded over the last two decades. Of his media relations work, National Journal wrote, Jesse Ferguson's skill is shaping a media narrative while remaining behind the scenes. Just the accolades, actually, you should Google him because it's it's a really fun set of aspirational accolades for anyone who's like young and, and in politics. This is the kind of thing that could be said about you someday if you put your nose to the grindstone and work at it. Campaigns and Elections Magazine named him one of its 40 under 40 rising stars. BuzzFeed named him to the 24 people who will be running Washington next year. It goes on and on and on. He's written about politics, messaging, and strategy for USA Today, CNN.com, Politico Magazine, Fortune Magazine, many others. And now he's with us on Beyond Politics. Jesse, welcome. Great to be with you. And with an intro like that, I think we should just adjourn the podcast. I think we're done. <laughs> That's uh, it. Just live. You know, if, if, uh, if you're referring to my work as stratospheric, then I'm, I'm, I'm con deeply concerned about what happens when you get far too close to the sun. But that's a whole nother, a whole yeah. nother commentary. I remember I mean, that there was a there was a great clip of the head of the Scientologists describing their their next year as when they were going to go stratospheric. And that's kind of ruined the whole term for me. So now <laughs> now I deeply regret applying it to you. So I, look, as I mentioned, I encountered you when your eminence was merely imminent, kind of when you were, were really kind of early in your work, in your career. And then we kind of set off on a slightly different trajectory. I'm not going to go through your whole, your whole bio and background. You've worked for sort of the who's who of democratic political organizations and candidates, obviously very influential in the Hillary Clinton campaign. One thing I just want to note at the top is if people have heard your name, they may have heard it in the context of your personal story. You encountered some really significant health challenges while you were working on the Clinton campaign. And so for people for whom your name may be ringing a bell, they may be thinking, how are you doing? So could you just refresh us what was your health challenge? You've been very public about it. I, I don't think I'm committing a HIPAA violation. What was your health challenge and, and how are you doing? Oh, thanks for that. And yeah, I, I, I think you and I did first cross paths when I was getting into national politics and, and at the DCCC. And it was a few years later when I was still working there that I was initially diagnosed with a head and neck cancer. Diagnosis was obviously a shock as it would be to anyone at that point. I was 33 years old, got treated initially at MD Anderson. I was fortunate to go to one of the best cancer hospitals in the, in the country. And it is not behind me. It is also not impeding me. And that's where it's been for a lot of years. I had... Uh, 
surgeries and radiation and all of the various treatments that are available at the time. I continue to get treated. It's a, essentially a chronic condition. I'm now nine years in. And as long as the drug therapies continue to work and continue to keep things under control, then it is part of my life like anyone else who has a chronic health condition and you manage it, you learn from it, and you put one foot in front of the other and plow forward. I wanted to That's bring where that I've up. been for, for, for a while. And as you say, I have been public about it. It's, yeah. it's funny, quick tangent, but I, I opted to be public about it mostly by accident because I, I got tired of calling friends, family, and colleagues and telling them one by one about the situation. So I finally just put up a blog post and it became public mostly out of my own impatience. Patience is a wonderful virtue, but I never claimed to be virtuous. And subsequently found a number of people involved in politics who've gone through similar situations in the last nine years and have reached out and whatnot. And, and it's ended up being a decision I'm happy I made to be public about it. Although I won't even pretend that I had that much forethought when I decided to be public about it. Hmm. Well, I wanted to bring that up in part because for the many of us who have followed along through your, your writing, your blog posting about it, and who have been rooting for you and keeping you in our thoughts, it's just it's just gratifying that you continue to be doing exactly what you just said, putting one foot in front of the other and and continuing to do really great work, which makes all of us very happy. I also wanted to bring it up because it does bridge to some of the substantive discussion that I wanted to have with you. For many people who are kind of tangentially around politics or follow it, read about it, it does take on a bit of a quality of a sports match. It's two teams against each other. People sometimes have an outside view that it's it's about, I'm air quoting here, strategy and messaging, which are the things you do. But you don't just do them because they're empty exercises or because they're well-paid or glamorous. They're actually frequently none of those things. You do them because the issues underlying them and the candidates you work for who hopefully get elected, get in a position to do something with it and make policy that you care about. So for a lot of us, we're following the 2016 election so closely, your personal saga as part of that and what you were working for was really what it was all about. It was about winning an election to do good things for people who needed better healthcare coverage, who, who needed that kind of support in their lives and needed to know that it was going to be there for them. That's, that's what the ACA was all about. And anyway, it just, to me, it bridges over to some of the work that you're doing now. Democrats have been on a string of major legislative victories, including most recently the Inflation Reduction Act. And part of what you do is try and help campaigns and organizations do messaging about it. So I guess my first question is, is this something that we can message and talk about positively? Is this an issue that is actually an asset that can help Democrats? Short answer is yes, and long answer is yes. The uh, Look, the number one issue to the American people right now 
is high inflation. We just passed an Inflation Reduction Act. If we can't, if, if the answer to the problem is not something that we can talk about, then I don't know what is something we can talk about. And, and look, I'm a, I'm in some survey research that I did not long ago, talking about the Inflation Reduction Act, not only is the, the law itself popular, and we can talk about why, but when we're talking about it, it moves the public's confidence that Democrats are focused on the right issues. It moves the public's confidence that Democrats are going to lower costs, and it moves the public's confidence in Democrats' handling of the economy, which is both a linchpin to our long-term policy goals, as you started this, this discussion, and also a linchpin to our success in the midterms. So ultimately, the infl- there are pitfalls, there are good ways and bad ways to talk about it, but the Inflation Reduction Act is the most comprehensive economic plan, a landmark law that reduces prices for prescription drugs, finally breaking the stranglehold that the drug companies have had on our policy and reducing, allowing negotiation for lower drug prices, capping drug prices, reducing health insurance premiums, bringing down energy bills. It's the type of kitchen table issue that that a lot of people want to hear about, need to hear about, and expect their government to be doing something about. And, and I sort of look at it this way. So much of what happens in Washington, as you said, becomes horse race or what I often call kind of spy versus spy BS, or it becomes the focus of really important think tanks and policy white papers, all of which I'm not trying to diminish their work. It's, it's important. But what we're doing in, in an economic plan like, like the Inflation Reduction Act is actually talking about something that matters to real people in their lives. And when you find that sweet spot, you ought to drive a Mack truck through it. And, and hopefully that's what we're doing as we, as we talk about this law going forward. It's kind of a weird question to me because over and over again, at least in my experience, what you, what you pick up on the surface if you do survey research, you do polling, you do focus grouping, is voters saying that they want a certain thing. It's like people who say they want to eat health food and then they flock to the McDonald's every single time. And it reminds me of the H.L. Mencken quote that democracy is the theory that the people know what they want and they deserve to get it good and hard. And over and over again, that's what campaigns essentially do is they will test. And I've been part of campaigns. You've been part of more campaigns that do this. They'll test oh, here's an issue that looks like it works for us. That's a, that's a clear policy issue. For example, the Wall Street Journal just released some polling showing that in the Inflation Reduction Act, that, that ability for Medicare to negotiate lower drug prices and expand domestic energy sources, 51% of the polls respondents said they were in favor of those things, 33% against. That's, that's a pretty healthy gap. That's the kind of thing that a campaign or or an advocacy group would look at and say, all right, at our advantage, we can press that. That's good. And yet time after time, what you find in campaigns is 
they struggle to come up with an effective message around something positive. And they go back to the McDonald's, by which I mean, they go back to what we could euphemistically called contrast messaging, or more realistically, negative messaging, where they basically say, look, the real issue in this campaign is that Donald Trump is Satan, and he's coming to eat you. And if you don't vote for a Democrat, he's going to be knocking at your door. So do, do you... Do you find that when it, when push comes to shove, when it's down to crunch time, that that the kinds of positives that we're talking about in the Inflation Reduction Act are really powerful messaging leverage points that Democrats should be using in their campaigns right now? Or do you think they're just going to ultimately flock back to the, look, we're better than Trump? Yeah, look, I think I think we have to. I think the ultimately people make a decision. There's two misconceptions about how voters often make their decisions. And one is that they decide entirely based on a positive message or entirely based on a negative message. And in reality, it's it's both and not either or. In reality, I, I look at midterms like a job performance review. And if you were going in to see your employer at the six-month mark or the two-year mark in a new job, and you sat down and they were asking you to make the case for why you should keep your job, you would have to show them that you're focused on the right things for the company. Mm. But you also might find a few opportunities to point out some of the other associates in the firm who are wasting their time at the office water cooler and cutting out at four o'clock in the afternoon to go to the bar, right? You, you would find ways to show why you're the answer the company needs and, why, and at the same time, why hiring somebody else would be destructive to the cause. Mm. And that's what you have to really do in a, in a campaign is, is show both of those at the same time. And the policy pieces, to your point, they're popular on their own. There are things we need to talk about, like letting Medicare negotiate lower prescription drug prices. But they also combine together to tell people something about who we are, what we stand for, whose side we're on. Rarely do voters make a decision with a policy spreadsheet in with an Excel spreadsheet when they show up at the at the polling place and check marks next to each issue. It's the totality of what that says about either the party or the candidate that's really driving that. And we need to find ways, and this is where I think sometimes we go off track, we need to find ways to talk about our agenda and what that means for people. And, what, and, and, and show them what our values are that drove that policy outcome. And that's really what's gonna make our side of the argument. And if we do it right, it contrasts with their side of the argument. We're focused on what real people need right now. And they're focused on fringes, extremism, and that contrast is is powerful. It's interesting that you say that because I've joked in the past, I think including on this show, that Democrat is 
derived from a Greek word, which means repeats facts smugly. And it does seem like we as a party do fall into that trap where we think that a persuasive argument is to repeat more facts and maybe cram more of them in and maybe we'll daze people into submission through the the power of our facts or the sophistication of our facts. And it does it does seem to be kind of it's just something that's not in our DNA or or doesn't come easily to people who who tend to fall into our party, which is we have a hard time connecting those dots in a way that tells a story about what our vision is for for people, why we're part of the party that we are, which kind of brings us full circle. I mean, is that well, is that really what you see? Yeah, oh, a hundred percent, and and I think it's the pitfall that that we fall into, as as you say. And I'd, I'd encourage your your listeners go back and watch. It's an old Steve Jobs video from about 1987, 88, when he took over at Apple, and talking about how they were going to rebrand and re- remarket the company at that point, which was lagging and sagging behind, and. It, talked about how they were going to lead with a marketing campaign around the values of the company and the values of the company at that time, the process they went through was this idea of thinking, think differently. Well, man, hasn't that been an enduring slogan for that company that's been pretty darn successful since then? The other one that always sticks out to me is the milk industry and Jobs talks about this is the milk industry, which for a lot of years was advertising about how safe milk is, and they were giving facts and figures about the safety of milk, and the purchase of milk was on the decline. And they re-triggered what they were doing, and they ended up coming together with a, a marketing campaign called Got Milk, and it showed a lot of people eating a chocolate chip cookie and then craving milk. And that was what they tapped into. So I, I, you can only learn but so much from corporate marketing, but there is some application. And some of it is this notion that we need to talk about the values that are undergirding what we do and get out of the jargon speak. And there's a mnemonic device that, that I've sometimes used and talked to folks about using ABCV. Attributes, benefits, consequences, values. Attributes, benefits, consequences, values. Think about like a waterfall. If you're trying to talk about what you are doing as a Democrat, the least effective message is the one about the attributes. It's Mm. big, it's small, it's groundbreaking, it's earth shattering, it's landmark, it's just, it's whatever. The next biggest one, let's say you were talking about the president's infrastructure plan that he passed several months ago, the benefit, it's going to bring $64 trillion to my state. Okay, the benefit, we're, we're getting a little better, but that's still not great. Consequences, this infrastructure plan is going to build new roads here and rehab bridges here. Okay, now we're talking about consequences. This is better. This is better messaging. We're cooking with grease. Values. I believe people should get home to spend more time with their family. That's why we passed a plan to fix our our roads and our bridges. Now you've actually talked about something 
that people might remember that speaks to their lives, that isn't marred down in policy detritus. So the more you're moving down that waterfall from attributes to benefits, from benefits to consequences, from consequences to values, the more that you're probably resonating with people when you're talking. That's spectacular. A, B, C, V. It reminds me of the training I got in grad school in my course on persuasion and in the persuasion literature, what they talk about, very similar to your values tie-in, is tying your message to what call what they call valence issues. Valence, there's there's one side or the other. It's mom and apple pie on one side, you know, Hitler on the other side, it really being very clear cut about there, there is a good. That that's what you're about. It kind of reminds me, spoiler alert, of sort of the most powerful scene in the in the series Mad Men at the end of the first season where he's trying to sell the carousel, the the the, the slide turner from, from Kodak. And the, the John Hamm character says he, he could talk about, well, the benefits, right? It lets you see your pictures so easily or the consequences. If you don't do this, then you're stuck with an awful organizational mess. But he he makes it about the values. He makes it about this is about love. This is about entering a time machine and taking you back so that you're with the people you love and who love you. And that's, of course, the most powerful sell. And it's it's just it's something that is is so hard to achieve. All right. Fine, well, you and I shot. I'm, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna hit you with a good one. You ready? How Go do you it. do that about the Inflation Reduction Act? Because Boy, it's it's uh, the benefits are good. Like I, I, I don't want the, the planet to cook, and I like negotiation. How do you how do you get to V on something like IRA? Yeah, well, for, first of all, you're you're not talking about it being just and fair in the attributes. You could talk about the benefits, as you said. You could get to the consequences. It's going to lower prescription drug prices. It's going to make energy bills more affordable. Well, what's the real value here? The value is that you believe families should be able to breathe a little bit easier at night, that they should be able to sleep at night without having nightmares about bills they can't afford, without worrying that one illness in the family will mean that they go bankrupt, without having to choose between paying their rent and paying paying for their prescription drugs. That's the value that you value working people, people who work for a living, and you want them to be able to breathe a little bit easier at night. And that's what this, that's what this plan does. Mm. Well, uh, that's a great answer. That's, that, that is a really good answer. Because if I, if I bollocks that one up, it would have been pretty embarrassing. So I'm glad, I'm glad I didn't do that. Well, I mean, we did not prepare that in advance. But full disclosure, I do I do know that you do this for a living. So I, I was pretty confident that you were going to knock that out of the park. I all right, look, let's well, and I think to your point though, your 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 point about the madmen reminds me I do some work in the climate space, and it reminds me of another really good example like that, which is go back and watch the intro welcome video to the Captain Planet series. Shows it off here for 20 years. Okay. That it talks about we're going to bring pollution down to zero. It compares and contrasts the good guys with the bad guys, loot and plunder, the two 
pollution villains covered in green slime. I mean, it's exactly the visual and audio contest contrast of good and evil around climate that is often better messaging than we do when we go down the policy detritus and we get lost in, in wantocracy. Well, it is. It also speaks to the storytelling aspect that's so important. I We had a great discussion with, for my mind, for my money, the top ad maker in democratic par- politics, Mark Putnam, a couple mm-hmm. of months ago. And that that's really, that's his secret sauce. That's, that's the whole magic is go back, listen to that episode, folks who are catching us on the air right now, Mark Putnam. What, what really stood out to me is he takes so much time on the front end to understand every last detail of a candidate's life, what makes them who they are, what makes them tick. And he tells stories about understanding a candidate. Well, what do you do in the morning? Well, I drive my kids to work. That's in- I drive my kids to school on my way to work. That's interesting. Is it a long drive? Yeah, it's, it's a long drive. Why? Well, I had to move my kids to a different district. Huh? Why did you do that? What does that what does that say about you? And the way that he gets from these little pieces of biography to a larger story about what makes this person tick and the V word. What are what are their values? So let's do another 100%. little piece of messaging. And, oh, go, go. Oh, I was just I was just gonna say, and and if you think about step outside of politics, think about what we all know and remember, what's our cultural reference points, mm. they're almost always stories. Right. Right. I mean what, what's the Bible, but a compilation of stories? Um, what's the most major kind of iconic cinematography? Like why is the Star Wars series so compelling to so many generations? Because it's a really compelling anthemic story. So the more we, I couldn't agree more that, that we talk in stories and that we talk in the outcome of those stories, go, go over to a Walmart today and look at a jungle gym and look at the box the, that's sitting on the shelf. The picture on the outside of the box, I guarantee you, is the assembled jungle gym. It's not all the parts laying out on the floor, which is what's actually in the box, right? right. So we, we're, we're talking about the end result. We're talking about the story. We're talking about why it would matter to your kids. That's right. where we, we find right. the winning message. And Democrats tend to talk about the parts and, oh, yeah. and, and not and not the, the assembled thing. Well, look, I mean, there's a reason per the Bible. And I, I look as a Jewish man, I, I feel a little awkward saying this, but Jesus spake to his disciples in parables, else he spake not, to quote King James. And that's uh, that's an enduring piece of wisdom. So let's do a little piece of messaging analysis together then on the biggest piece of political communication that we have an example of recently, which is Joe Biden's big speech in Philadelphia last week. I'm going to give you my criticism of it. I'd like to hear what you think. I, I thought that it was, first of all, the right thing to do because as the president of the United States, he is honor and oath bound to speak to the American people who he works for about threats to the constitution and the country. And so he had to give that speech because the threat he's speaking about is very real. I thought that strategically in a political sense, it was probably the right thing to do as well. And there were a number of elements of the way 
the speech was structured per that strategy that I, I quite liked. If I had to quibble with it, I would, I would quibble in two ways. One is what we were just talking about. There was sort of a lack of storytelling embedded in there, a personalization, uh, an identification, and an empathy with, with people who might be listening to it. And the other thing is the way Republicans heard that speech was as a, you're either with us and everything that the Democratic Party stands for in their minds, which ideologically they may not be fully comfortable with, or you're with these deplorable threats to America. And that wasn't the most inviting proposition. I would have rather seen more of a Monty Hall scenario where door number one is fire-breathing MAGA types. But there's also a door number two offered to gettable, traditional, normie Republicans and, and independents, which is, here's what we've done as Democrats. Here's what we stand for. Here are our values. But recognize that all of our policy choices that we think reflect those values, we're open to conversations because we understand that people have different ideas, different approaches. And so if you're someone who's economically conservative, if you're someone who's maybe still catching up to some of the comfort points in the culture around tolerance and acceptance, and you're on the journey, but you're still getting there, we're, there's a place for you here. We can find common cause together. I would have I would have liked to have heard a bit more of an open hand in all of that. That's my reaction. What did you think? Yeah, I, I take your point. I guess I look at it as the speech is ultimately a success because it's been an entire week and we're after Labor Day and we're still talking about it. Right. And such a challenge for this administration and any administration, frankly, is we live in a attention-based media ecosystem where finding moments that get eyeballs and get attention and break through is such a massive hurdle that the fact that they were able to make this a real moment, the proof is in the pudding and it's in the fact that we're still talking about it and his critics are too. And and that means that it's driving an actual conversation, which is which is so so hard to do. And and I think I agree with your point about he's duty bound absolutely and, and the threats that against democracy, the threats of political violence, the the criminal conspiracies are, are very real. And if we underestimate those, we will underestimate them at our peril. I, I think the other thing the speech did is it laid the groundwork or, or continued to lay the groundwork for the idea that the Republican Party has changed, which is such an important part of what we have to reinforce on a regular basis, that the Republican Party has been taken over by this extreme MAGA wing. It's not just the inmates that are running the asylum, but like the inmates have taken over the asylum and they're opening all the doors, right? I, that, that notion and, and, and injecting that into the public consciousness and into, into culture is what gives permission for a lot of Republicans to say, I used to be a Republican, 
I used to be comfortable with this party, but I can't be anymore because of what they've become, because of what they've been taken over by. And that's a key part of the story we have to tell. And, and I think he laid it down in that speech in a way that may have, may have broken through. Mm, I take your point. And just to build on something you said there, it is so important, it seems to me. And look, if you lived this in the most painful way possible as part of the Clinton campaign in 2016. But I do think one of the, the insights that we all learned in the 2016 campaign is how important it is to drive the earned media narrative and the relative value of what people are picking up from the overall news environment, from the from the major sources of coverage versus the value of the message that we put out, that we control through paid media. And there's that oft-cited statistic about Donald Trump gaining $2 billion worth of earned media coverage through cable in 2016 and how much that helped him, even when on the paid media side, the, the campaign run ads, even when on that side, post-Labor Day, the Clinton campaign enjoyed a three-to-one advantage over the Trump campaign. And that was essentially nullified by having such wattage in earned media. Some of it was hate viewing. That was sort of the point, was the spectacle of it. But to some degree, I think the insight that Donald Trump had or the people around him was they had to drive the narrative. They had to they had to determine what the conversation was about. And I do think that's a very powerful point you're raising here about the Biden speech, which is to some degree now he's owned the narrative and he's driving the narrative about the kind of choice we face in the midterms. And I said all that partly by way of bridging to the topic of the midterms, because I got to hit that with you. We're nine weeks out as of this this past Tuesday, as we record this, although hopefully the show will have a long enough shelf life that maybe people will be hearing it in a few weeks. So what seems to have happened is a couple of months ago, I got I actually got a text from another Democratic consultant, someone we both know, saying, look, Democrats are sort of running a risk here. This was at the height of the January 6th hearings. And this consultant's point was the number one issue on voters' minds is inflation. And we're talking about January 6th. We are at risk of looking dumb. And while that was a risk, I think it has obviously paid off because we just got an NBC News poll that said that threats to democracy had hit number one on voters' concern list, even above inflation. And we're seeing that contrast, especially as the whole Trump Mar-a-Lago search plays out, really, really beginning to hit voters that there, there is a, a constellation of issues that they should be worried about that seems to supersede inflation. Is that how you see the dynamic of the midterms? Is this essentially a competition between issue top of mind being inflation, and if that's the case, advantage Republicans versus issue top of mind being the whole Trump disaster nexus. And if that's top of mind, advantage Democrats. Yeah, I, I, I see where you're going with that. And I think there is some truth to it. Although I, I don't believe we're ever going to get to a scenario, nor do we need to, where inflation is not the number one issue in voters' minds mm -hmm. going into the polls. 
but two things can and have happened. One, the edge is off of the inflation, off of voters' concerns about Democrats around the economy. Some of that goes back to reforms we're doing, the Inflation Reduction Act. Some of it goes back to gas prices coming down and some of the economic realities right now. But the the edge is off. We look like we're actually focused on that issue. And at the same time, Republicans have gone to, to the wrong side on that issue. So there's a lot of voters out there who would say the country's on the wrong track, the economy's on the wrong track, inflation's my number one issue. But I don't think it's Joe Biden or Joe Biden and Democrats that are that are responsible for that. And in fact, I have real concerns about what the Republicans would do on that issue. But I, I think secondarily to that, the other thing that's really happened over these m most recent weeks is that the election has morphed from a thumbs up, thumbs down on democratic control into voters being confronted with that choice to go back to where we talked about a while ago in this conversation, my analogy of a job performance review, they're no longer just saying, thanks for your two years of work, Matt, you did a good job or you did a bad job. They're now saying, thanks for your work for two years. Here's what we think of how you did, but let's also look at the rest of the talent pool and who we could replace you with. And that's a function of the January 6th committee. That's a function of the Mar-a-Lago. That's a function of their voting records on the Veterans Bill, the Inflation Reduction Act, the CHIPS Bill. That's a function of the Supreme Court overturning Roe. It's all, and that's a function of some of their individual candidates it truly melting down in, in uh, under public scrutiny. All of that taken together, it's put a spotlight on them that has changed this midterm in a way we might not have seen since 98 or 02 into much more of a choice and much less of a referendum. All that said, I'm not predicting it's a midterm. The history is clear. It's not going to be a great night for Democrats, but the trajectory has changed. All right. Just to close out, let's take a dose of our own prescription here. Stories. Stories are important. What's your What's your favorite campaign story? Ooh, my favorite campaign story. Well, there's well, one of my favorites was, well, when I took over running the independent expenditure for the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee in early 2014, I sat down with our, our chairman at the time and he offered me the job and I looked at him and the way these strange legal rules work around independent expenditures, I looked to him and said, so you're going to give me a budget of $75 million and legally you can't ask me nor tell me what I'm going to do with that. Am I understanding this correctly? And he kind of looked at me, said a few expletives, which I'll, I'll spare your listeners from and walked out of the room. But it was an accurate reflection of the structure we've made in a moment that stuck with me. Certainly the first moment I met Secretary Clinton and I was, when I came up to New York to work for her, I, it's hard to parse just one. But, but what about you? What's, what's your oh. hallmark story? 
I'll make this very quick because you and I were involved in this in different ways. One of my high points was I ran a congressional campaign in 2012 for the most endangered incumbent Democrat in the House of Representatives. And we were a goner. Everyone thought we were goners. Stu Rothenberg, the number one prognosticator of House races, said we were a goner. And we won the race. We won it by 3,000 votes. I think you were at the, at the D trip at the time. And I was on the phone with one of the top consultants in the country. I, I'll, I'll leave his name out of it. And the results were coming in. The results are coming in. Calls me up and he says, you know, Matt, I think you won this thing. And I wouldn't accept it. I, I said, no, <laughs> no, no. You haven't seen the results from Marblehead. Not trending well. And I, I was resistant. I would not accept success because I had, I was I just prepared myself psychologically so much for taking the loss. I just couldn't wrap my head around it. Then I went in to tell the candidate and he wouldn't accept it either. I, I said, <laughs> I am 100% confident. I've, I've run the numbers. We have won. And he's like, he's like, well, would you just call up a couple more towns to really, really be sure? He wouldn't take yes for an answer either. It was it was great. It was really fun. Hey, speaking of really fun, this has been an absolute blast to do with you. I'm so happy to have you on the show. I, I definitely want to have you back and stay well and keep doing what you're doing. Thanks so much for having me. This was a ton of fun and I'm glad we got a chance to chat. It had been too long. <laughs>